How can literature help us extend our empathic imaginations? How can writing and reading expand our curiosity and compassion for people in situations distant from our own? Jim Shepard is a prize-winning novelist and short story writer, known for his enormous range and the research that informs his work. He is the author of eight novels, most recently Phase Six. His novel, The Book of Aaron, is the winner of the 2016 Penn New England Award, the Sophie Brody Medal for Achievement in Jewish Literature, and the Clark Fiction Prize. He has also written five collections of short stories, including Like You'd Understand Anyway, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the winner of the Story Prize. His fiction has often been selected for the Best American Short Stories and the Penn O. Henry Prize Stories. He teaches film and creative writing at Williams College. Jim Shepard, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I can't really say that you have a representative subject matter, but you've chosen one of your novels to read from. Could you set it up with a passage you'll be sharing? You're right. I don't have anything that seems characteristic of my work because as reviewers and booksellers point out peevishly all the time, everything I do is different from what came before. Although I am somewhat attracted to catastrophe, which turns out to be a little more salient than I thought it was going to be when I was a kid. I'm going to be reading from a novel called Project X, which is about two radically alienated 14-year-olds who are negotiating their own unhappiness at a dismal junior high until they conceive of a plan to shoot up the school, essentially. And I'll be reading from the very beginning. And if you notice any gaps, they're probably being filled with even better prose that I skipped. Part of the beginning goes like this. Mr. Hanratty, my fifth period social studies teacher, says in front of the whole class, I haven't even sat down yet. You're going to be favoring us with more of your particular brand of sullenness this year? I write my name on the inside of the 20th century civilization's cover. E. Hanratty. What are you shaking your head about, he wants to know. I'm not shaking my head about anything, I tell him. He asks if I'm calling him a liar. I'm not calling you a liar, I tell him. He says he'd like me to apologize to my classmates for wasting everybody's time at the beginning of the semester. I apologize to my classmates. Kids snicker. Don't let it happen again, a kid behind me says. We're going to be concentrating this year on innovators, the teacher says. Men and women of the 20th century who found new ways of addressing society's problems. Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Mr. Hanratty, any names to add to our list? Jeffrey Dahmer, I go. So on day one, I get detention. Secretary outside the vice principal's office congratulates me on being the first kid called in this year. I don't see Flake for three straight periods. What's the matter with you? A girl asked me on the stairs. I have to call home when detention's over since the buses all left an hour ago. My mother comes to get me and drives a mile and a half after I get in before she says anything. I measure it on the odometer. Your friend called four times, she says. He didn't seem to know about your detention. You mad, I ask? No, I'm proud, she says. Sorry, I tell her. So what'd you do, she says. Talk back. Talk back, I tell her. At dinner, my dad tells me I'm grounded. Mm, no more malt shop for me, I go. He tells me I'm grounded an extra week. Blake can't believe it when I get him on the phone. That's fucked up, he says. I hear him sucking down a go-gurt. He goes through the things like he's five years old. How could you get into trouble so fast with everybody? But he likes what I told the teacher. He thinks my parents should have cut me some slack. All the lights and TV finally go off around midnight. My dad peeks in. To make sure I'm not on the computer or sharpening a spoon to cut out his heart. You asleep, he says. Completely, I tell him. I have the covers over my face and a hand off each side of the bed. Try to avoid any felonies on day two, he says. Though I know you already set a standard for yourself. I think mom's waiting for you, I go. You've got some mouse on you, he says. Good night, I tell him. And I can't sleep. The digital clock on the nightstand makes loose little flipping noises when the minutes change. And I put my underwear over it and then I can't take it anymore and I have to see how much time has passed. The flipping noises just keep going, each one getting me closer to school. I get up and I go to the bathroom mirror. My nose is eight feet long and I've never had a haircut I liked. 
My glasses are crooked from always being broken. My lips are too big. If I get any skinnier, I'll be able to pull a sock up to my neck. Somebody help me, I go. I squat on the floor with my hands behind my head and I rock in place. You look worn out, my mom tells me at breakfast. Can I just have a orange juice, I go. I'm going to stop there. As you might guess, things go downhill from there. Yes. And it really helped us understand this kind of alienation, the isolation, because we see these news items where there's a school shooting. And I know you didn't write it to be like a sociologist, but after writing it, do you, do you have more questions or do you have some answers for us? After writing it? Well, it actually originated in my own experience. I went to an absolutely miserable junior high school. And I remember at one point a young man coming into the lunchroom who was even more miserable than I was. And he proposed that he was going to bring in a hunting rifle and deal with the football team using the hunting rifle. And we all had a very serious debate about whether he should do this or not. And the general consensus was he shouldn't because with a hunting rifle, he would only kill one or two people before the football team beat him to death, essentially. Once the Columbine shooting happened, I remember thinking that discussion that we had would have been very different if that kid had access to automatic weapons. Because the argument that we used to talk him out of it was, you're not going to kill enough people to make it worth it. And that kind of alienation, I never forgot. Because I also remembered the way adolescence is so apocalyptic. That's something that seems absolutely unendurable on Wednesday. On Thursday, you sort of go, okay, I think I can get through that. And when an adult tells a child that or tells a teenager that, the teenager just thinks, that's just proof you don't understand either my world or my psyche. As an adult, you try to say to your kid, listen, it's going to seem a little better on Thursday, but they can't hear that because they're living in an apocalyptic landscape. And I was able to channel that in my own misery. Also, just to make sure I wasn't too much of a historical figure, I went to both a private school in LA and a public school in Massachusetts and sat in the back for a few weeks in each. And I was dismally reminded that things hadn't improved very much. Yeah, if anything, the online bullying has increased. So it's not just, I leave school, I can leave it behind. And also, I think with the new technologies, video games that allow people to imagine, that create these fantasies, maybe offer opportunities for them to embellish their fantasies or their darkness. Mm -hmm. I'd much rather people be writing angry novels. Well, certainly this kept me out of prison. So at least there's that anyway. Yeah, so the power of your empathic imagination is astounding. You're arranged because you're imagining people who've gone through great tragedies, like whether it's the Holocaust or Chernobyl or Arctic explorers. You could go on. What do you think accounts for this diversity of your imagination? Because a lot of people say, oh, you follow one track and then just keep on doing that. That's what people want. But you're defying expectations. Well, it's sort of a double thing. On the one hand, in terms of what I'm writing about, in terms of general subjects, I'm always trying to make myself a more interesting human being. And so that means I'm reading a lot about what human beings have gone through, often in historical terms. And I'm coming across these human dilemmas where I'm like, oh my God, what would it have been like to be in that position? And sometimes when someone tells you a story like that uh, over breakfast or something, you think, oh, wow, what a great story. And you never think about it again. Sometimes when somebody tells you a story like that, you can't get it out of your head. You just keep thinking, ah, oh, what would that mother do in that situation? What would I do in that situation? And for me, that's a little signal that, in fact, the narrative that I've come across or the factoid I've come across has snagged my emotional imagination. And I do think that literature is all about extending the empathetic imagination. And so I'm always looking in some ways 
to educate myself in emotional terms too. And so I'm very interested in those historical situations that put people in what seem to be impossible positions, because I'm very interested in the way we respond in those situations where it feels like we both have responsibility and we don't have responsibility, because we're so willing to exploit the latter. We're so willing to say, I I didn't have any power in this case. Because of the way I was raised and because of where I come from, I'm very drawn to the worms that I view. I'm very drawn to that situation of feeling as though you have even less power than you actually do. Rather than writing, for example, about what it would be like to be a Roman centurion. I found myself writing about what it would be like to be some poor schlub who's an auxiliary, who's manning Hadrian's wall, who barely has any idea why he's there. That feeling, what am I doing here and how much responsibility do I have? And maybe I can hide behind the fact that I have very little. That feeling is very common to me. I feel that all the time. So that allows me to access some of these far-flung experiences that would seem to be way outside what I can imagine. Yeah. And speaking of historical periods that you've written about, you've recently had the adaptation of one of your stories from your collection, The World to Come, adapted for the screen and seeing your story take on a physical form that it didn't necessarily have except in the mind's eye of readers or your mind's eye of writing. How was that like to see that adaptation? But you were also, it should be said, involved in the screenplay. Yeah. It's a thrill to work with actors you admire. And I got to work with Casey Affleck and Vanessa Kirby and Catherine Waterston, and they're wonderful actors. The whole business of film runs on compliments, because then if you compliment people, you don't have to pay them. And so I got to be on the set in the Carpathians when they were filming, and I got a steady diet of, oh my God, from actors I've always admired, you're such a good writer, this is such a good screenplay, and I was just basking in it. As a fiction writer, you don't get that very often. So that, I was just happy to have a little narcissistic warm bath and float around in that for a while and imagine myself as Casey Affleck's favorite writer, which I think I was for 30 minutes or something like that. In terms of what gets rendered, at times you're just like, oh, that's exactly as I imagined. At times you're like, wow, I never imagined it that way, but that's actually quite interesting. And at other times you're like, no, that's not the way I would have imagined it. And if you're working with film, even if you're the screenwriter, especially if you're the screenwriter, you register, you don't have the power. You just put this skeletal machine out there and then everybody else is going to put their vision over it, essentially. So I came away thinking, I'm glad the movie is as good as it is. I wish it had been better, but that's what I think anybody who's had their work adapted would say. You feel, I think, often like you just dodged a bullet. This could have been a much bigger problem than it was. And of course, you're grateful that anything gets a bigger audience. I'm not sure when you first conceived of your book, Phase 6, and perhaps we should tell listeners its subject coincided with COVID. I'm one of those people who's believed for years that the next pandemic was coming. About five years before COVID, I started working on the book. And I was just smart enough to get my publisher to pay for the book in advance, mostly because I needed to go to Greenland to research it. And I thought, That's a very expensive trip. If somebody else would pay for that, would be very nice. So that was actually the first book I ever sold in advance. And thank God I did, because when I delivered it to Knopf, it was February of 2020 and COVID was just hitting. And Knopf was sort of flummoxed. They were like, this is literally coming true as you deliver the book. Which, if I delivered the book a year earlier, would have been wonderful news because they would have been able just to hang it. There's our book right there. Look, here's what's happening. But because it would take about a year to publish, they thought, what do we do with this now? 
do we hang on to it for a while or do we publish in the middle of a pandemic? I think we all agreed there was no good answer to that. And so we thought, well, bring it out a year into the pandemic. And readers, perhaps unsurprisingly, were like, yeah, this is about the last thing I want to read right now. And in fact, almost all the reviews I got hilariously began with something like, well, if you're going to read one pandemic novel, I guess this is the one you should read. But the implication was, I understand that you're not going to want to read a pandemic novel. So poor Knopf got stuck with a book that got very good reviews, but uh, nobody wanted to read, I think, at that point. Maybe it'll get people's attention now, but I don't see why it would. Yeah, it's strange being prescient that way. And I guess it's a good warning as well, because these pandemics with global warming will increase. And with globalization, different pandemics, we can't expect to behave this way to our planet with no consequences. So I think it's important. But yeah, it's difficult when people are in the middle of a crisis like that. So how did the actual isolation of COVID affect you? Or as a novelist, is it business as usual? Novelist are such shut-ins for the most part that in some ways it didn't affect me very much at all. I'm still researching and writing. On the other hand, the research that involved travel was out the window. And one of the things that the severe isolation did that I was actually grateful for was our family got stuck together. My son was in South Africa when it broke and I immediately had him come back because as he put it, dad registers catastrophe before anybody else does. So we all were in the house in Massachusetts when the shit hit the fan. And we enjoyed being with each other. So it was a wonderful eight months of being hunkered down with each other. So that was a quite a plus. Everything else, of course, was a negative. But in the case of a worldwide pandemic, you are hunting around for the pluses. Maybe your routine was different when you were in isolation, but I'm wondering if you have a writing routine. Do you write in the mornings? Do you write at night? And how have you managed throughout your life through different phases to make writing a priority? I write in the mornings because that's when I tend to have the most energy. What I'll do is I'll get up around 6.30 or 7 and allow myself like a half hour of just staring into space and drinking coffee and looking at email and seeing if there's anything important. And then I put all that out of my head as best I can and I sit down and if I'm not teaching, I'll try to write from about 8 to 12. When my mother would walk into the room when I was writing, she didn't know I was writing because I was staring out a window or something like that. But usually I'm breaking around noon. And unless I'm very far into a project, like the last stages of a novel or the last stages of a story, that'll be all I do for that day. But if I'm in the last stages, I might come back to it because I'm starting to get some momentum and I might work many more hours. But I'm finding as I turn ancient that it's harder to concentrate for longer stretches. So normally my writing would be 8 to 12. And in terms of how you make time, you really have to be resourceful if you're doing other work and almost everybody is doing other work. And I think you have to say to yourself, how do I maximize that ability to feel decent about what I'm doing? So if you're a night owl, you carve out those hours. If you're a morning person, you try to carve out those hours. And you try to think of it as a non-negotiable. I think when you're in relationships and stuff like that, you tend to think it's a narcissistic injury to that person if I go into the room for two or three hours. And I think what you need to do is say something like, hey, if you really care about me, you'll understand why I'm in this room for two or three hours, but I need to do this. I have friends who go, well, I have to exercise. If I don't exercise, I just feel terrible. That's kind of the way I feel as a writer. Um, I have to do this for a few hours. Of course, there are days like when I'm teaching and I can't do it at all. But normally, even on semesters when I'm teaching, I'll be able to write three days a week or research three days a week or do something three days a week that makes me feel like I'm not a fraud. Speaking of research, I know that your stories are in periods of time that a lot of people don't know anything about and it's hard to pathically project into 
ancient Rome. So I wonder about your process of researching and how much of it is actual historical fact and how much of it is you making up realistic possibilities. I'm not one of those people who likes to imagine alternative histories. So I get very squirrely when I'm putting something in a story that isn't historically accurate. The way my work operates separately from history is I have no problem condensing or hybridizing. So for example, I might have that legionnaire auxiliary on Hadrian's wall do something that a legionnaire did in Gaul a century earlier that I came across in a source. And I don't feel bad about transposing that action from one place to another, but I wouldn't invent something entirely that it seems to me historically implausible. So I'm trying to learn enough about that world that I can start to pile up details that seem plausible and also create a plausible illusion. I'm not an expert about any of these worlds. So what I'm trying to do is, with a minimum of details, make you think that you can see a whole world and understand a sensibility. And usually, as you might guess, the biggest issue with those far-flung worlds is voice. What does a Roman sound like? What does an 18th century Frenchman sound like? And of course, there you're doing an illusion as well, because you're not really presenting those voices, which would seem hopelessly hard to decode for us. You're trying to provide enough cues to the strangeness of it that a modern reader can both appreciate what's going on emotionally, but also say, this is strange in an interesting way, in a coherent way. So what I'll often do if I'm writing about a character like that is try to immerse myself in as many primary texts as I can, as many first-person texts. And there, of course, there aren't many first-person texts from ancient Rome, but you can, for example, come across the compilations of letters home from the legions or messages that they all wrote on shards of pottery before they went to battle or something like that. And that's voice. You're literally hearing what they say and how they say it. And so that's the kind of stuff that I'll immerse myself in. But as you might guess, you have to be a pretty serious geek to do stuff like that. I'm often taking books out of the library that very few people, if anybody, has ever taken. That's so interesting. And I think what a wealth, or if one wants to say a rubbish heap of like social <laughs> media posts that we have in comparison, as you say, you might be lucky to find a few bits of papyrus or old letters. Exactly. But now it's like weeding through, my God, we are the most expressed generation. Now it's a needle in a haystack as opposed to, you know, one needle on a barren plane. You know? You also teach film at Williams, and I remember you said in college you were into a film club and just very interested in film as well as writing. And I wonder how your passion for film has informed your style as a writer or maybe your choice of content. Some of your stuff can be said to be cinematic. It's not an accident. Why? My father and my brother were very big movie buffs. And by the time I'd grown up to, say, 18 or so, I had seen thousands of movies or parts of movies. And in fact, I was in many ways more cinematically literate than literarily literate. And that has to push your imagination in a certain direction. If you think about the way point of view operates in fiction, you either have something quite interior and quite ruminative, which is the literary model, right? Let's say... Henry James or Virginia Woolf, where you're inhabiting a mind really, really intricately and you know what it's like to be that sensibility. Or you have an, this sort of Hemingway model where you're trying to understand a person on the basis of their behavior, on the basis of what you can see, and you're getting a minimum of interiority. If you think about Hemingway's Nick Adams stories, which spawned a whole generation of imitators and minimalist writers in America, especially, the idea was what fiction could replicate for you was not, oh, this is what it's like to be in another person's mind. 
so much as this is what it's like to be alive in America, where you look at somebody and you say, what is going on in Mia's head? I can only figure that out by watching her very, very carefully. I tend towards the latter, which is, I think, the much more cinematic model. Cinema is not very good at interiority. Cinema is really good at behavior, at action, at allowing us to figure out through exterior signals what's going on. This is very appealing for me because I have an interior life of a 10-year-old. Cinema is also very good at spectacle, and it's very good at amazing visuals. And I'm very interested in that sort of thing too. So as soon as you tell me that this was the biggest tsunami ever, I'm like, I want to know more about that. And that kind of childlike wonder about the visual is often what'll drive me to sit down and do a story in the first place. Because like so many men, my first impulse is not to go, let me look at myself in intricate emotional terms. That's what I want to do today. Instead, what I want to do is go, wow, the biggest volcanic eruption ever? I want to know more about that. Or holy cow, how does somebody become a hereditary executioner? How does somebody have that as a family business? And that leads me to difficult emotional situations. So I start with the much more visual and the much more spectacular. And I'm sure cinema drove me in that direction in the first place. I think that with cinema, because of course it's such a collaborative medium, that maybe some of the ambiguity or nuance or pure expressiveness comes from the composer, the music coming in, mm -hmm. or the actor who sometimes plays their face like a musical instrument. Exactly. It's not defined as much because you can really pinpoint the thought. What did my thought look like? Oh, <laughs> that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. And in fact, it's a very different literary impulse, right? Some people are drawn very much. If you think about the James Ian or the Virginia Woolfian model, they're drawn to precisely that precision. I'm going to know exactly what he was thinking at that moment. Other people are drawn to the ambiguity. When you look at an actress's face in the cinema, you can say to yourself, here's what she's feeling. But you're just guessing, really. And as you say, you're also being inflected by the music. You're being all sorts of other things. But you're very aware that you're constructing an interpretation. And that's quite a different satisfaction than the one that says, no, this is literally what she was thinking. And what she was thinking was brilliant in exactly this way. It's interesting because we've included a number of different filmmakers and different composers like John Powell said he did all this born films. And he's also a big conductor or a composer as well. People read in different ways. Some people are like, where I really tell stories is on the page. But he was explaining the difference between music and language or mm -hmm. written language. And he said, oh, but it's so clear in the music. And I would have thought, <laughs> oh, it's so ambiguous. Hey. I get the feeling, but it's not that I can actually register exactly what's happening through the music. But then that's how he best expresses himself. So it's so fascinating the different ways people receive the world. And you mentioned something about the authentic voice and inhabiting these different voices, whether it's going back in time or in different countries. And so I wondered if you had asked yourself, how do you feel that the language you were born into, the grammar which you were born into, has informed your imagination? Can you really separate the two or it's, they're so closely bound? The voice I was born into is very much like the one I read, the Project X. I'm a lower middle class Italian kid from Bridgeport, Connecticut. And so that voice is colloquial and sometimes profane and goofily and precise at times and stuff like that. I've aspired to all sorts of other different kinds of voices. And of course, whatever strengths and weaknesses I have in my own inherent voice are 
on display in those. But again, in those cases too, I'm hitching myself to all sorts of research that allow me to essentially sound like somebody else. And it's really just a version of what you do when you say, oh my God, you have to meet my Aunt Mary. She's a hoot. She'll often say something like this. And then you do Aunt Mary. And if you do a pretty good impression, people are like, wow, you don't sound like yourself anymore. You sound like Aunt Mary. And the reason you're able to do that is because you've been paying very close attention. You've honored Aunt Mary by going, I'm going to try and figure what your patterns are. And you take what strengths you have in your own voice and you use them to sound like somebody else. But you don't completely leave yourself ever, especially if you're doing anything extended. You're going to come back to me as obsessions one way or the other. What you're most interested in, Aunt Mary's voice, are those things that you yourself are wrestling with a lot. When reviewers talk about my work, they often say no one subject is like another subject. But when they talk about thematic and emotional things, they go, yeah, he keeps coming back to the same things over and over again, complicity and responsibility and that kind of stuff. What is quite puzzling now, because we're all looking into the precipice of AI and chat, GPT, those new technologies give the impression of understanding. I feel like it's a very sophisticated search engine and <laughs> plagiarist as well. They don't have problems with plagiarism down the line. I think they're even putting forward the idea of having chat, GPT therapists. You feel like someone might be there listening and giving an impression of having heard you and this is what I understood, but it isn't real. So I wonder what you speculate about that and what's the importance of having novelists and humanities scholars involved in the governance or the design of these new technologies? As you might guess, as a catastrophist, I'm not particularly optimistic about anybody controlling these new technologies. I think the problem with them is it's always about money. And as soon as it becomes about money, regulation is going to be far behind that. And I think they do need to be regulated. And I think artists would be very useful people to be part of that. I think because artists fall so far down the capitalist chain of command, they're unlikely to be part of that solution. But it's a losing battle anyway, because chat GBT saves people time, saves human hours as far as capitalists are concerned. I don't know if you saw the comments by Philippine journalist Maria Ressa recently. She was at the National Press Club and she was talking about the attention economy. And she was talking about the ways in which what's become now the new capitalist prizes our attention. And that once people figured out that false information spreads online much faster than real information, then the truth becomes disincentivized, right? And human contact in some ways with chat GBT becomes disincentivized in economic terms. I don't think you have to be too smart to figure out how catastrophic the results of that are, right? But we're pushing back against profit. And we don't tend to do very well as a world society pushing back against profit. What we're able to do is slow down the losing, I think, more than win. And that's what I think we can try to do. It's like when people complain about the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party in America. My usual response is to say, well, would you like to walk off the cliff or run off the cliff? Which is your preference? Most people would like to go off the cliff more slowly, which is maybe the way we all operate in life anyway. We all know we're headed for that cliff one way or the other, but do we need to get off it as fast as possible? It's about putting fuel on things that might already be there. And it goes back to what we began this conversation with Project X. People blame that kind of incel culture. Mm -hmm. These communities, these disembodied communities of growing rage among adolescents causing some of that violence. It can only get worse. It can only get worse. And you know what the arts offer is what kids like that need, right? Which is some kind of human companionship, some sense 
that you're not alone out there. When you say these are radically alienated kids and you connect it to gaming, part of what you're saying is they don't think of other human beings as anything other than ciphers or obstacles. So anything that can break through that is a huge stay against that. And the arts theoretically do that. Families reaching out to family members theoretically do that. But anybody who's had a tormented adolescent knows how hard that is and knows that if the kid is in the room playing games, a lot of times an exhausted parent just thinks, well, at least I know where he is. Um, and every time I reach out to him, he tells me to leave. So what am I supposed to do? I don't think there's any doubt that the arts educate our emotions and for that reason are hugely helpful. But the arts have always been undervalued in America and are even more undervalued in America than they used to be. And certainly reading is on the decline. And that's a huge problem. I'm perfectly willing to believe that novels are in some ways going the way of the dodo. They're not the literary form for the next 100 years. I'm not willing to concede that we all should give up reading and critical thinking, but our culture is pushing us in that direction. I have three children, five years apart, each one of them, and the youngest is 21 years old, and her connection to the phone is way more profound than the oldest one. We all are dependent on our phones now. But that sense we have that we need to be checking it all the time, that sense we have that we will not immerse ourselves in the arts anymore because there might be something on our phone we have to check, that's way more widespread now than it used to be. It is this sense and this lack of connection with the spiritual or the physical. In Japan, they have a term for it, the hikikomori, a whole mm -hmm. generation who like don't even leave their homes. And of course, they were quick adapters of the new technology. So <laughs> I, I was wondering, speaking of this inhabiting voices, you have in the Book of Aaron, it's set in World War II. So you inhabit voices from the Warsaw Ghetto. When you've inhabited certain voices, that's a very particular experience. Have certain groups ever claimed ownership of that? Or has it been a delicate situation? or how would you overcome that? It's always a delicate situation because there's an enormous amount of hubris involved in taking on another voice. And I think the way you deal with that is with as much respect as you possibly can. You say, I realize what I'm about to do is very, very difficult. And all I can do is try to do it as well as I can. And if I don't do it as well as I can, I won't even expose it to the light of day. If I do it as well as I can, and I think it's worth being exposed to the light of day, I'll run it by some people who know more than I do and see if they think it's problematic. And then if they don't think it's problematic, then I'll run it through the larger world. There'll always be some people who think you need to be from this particular group to write about this particular group. The logic of that makes a certain amount of sense. If you say, maybe you shouldn't write about what it's like to be inside a gas chamber unless you've been inside a gas chamber, that seems to me pretty persuasive. If you say, maybe you shouldn't write about a different ethnic group, at some point you have to say to yourself, where do you stop at? Do people of Thai descent prevent themselves from writing about people of Cambodian descent? If you're from Bushwick, do you have any right to write about people from Williamsburg? At some point, you need to remember that literature is supposed to be about, again, extending the empathetic imagination. We have to be able to imagine that our imaginations can put ourselves in other sensibilities. And that doesn't absolve us of the responsibility involved in doing that. But I also worry that when people say, oh, you shouldn't be writing about that, part of what they're doing is just staking out a territory. You shouldn't be writing about that. I should be writing about that because this is my territory. And I'm certainly willing to believe that somebody who has a background of they're a person from Kansas, in some ways they have more authority to write about Kansas than I do. But that doesn't mean I don't get to write about Kansas. It is becoming an even more fraught subject, obviously. And I think every writer I know figures out what that line in the sand is. So that I thought, for example, am I really going to write about a child in the Warsaw Ghetto? And then I thought, I think I am. 
And then knowing that child went to the gas chambers in Treblinka, I said, I'm not going to write about what it's like to actually be in a gas chamber, am I? And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So I have to figure out a way of doing this project without crossing that line. But that's where my line was. And there were any number of Jewish groups that extolled what I did and said, we're going to give you this award. But I'm sure there were others that were like, no, you don't get to do this. If you're not Jewish, you don't get to do this. And there are some that would say, no, if you weren't at that camp, you don't get to do it. But part of the way I dealt with that issue, which I think is a real issue, is my character never got to Treblinka. The novel ends with my character heading toward Treblinka, because that was, for me at least, the limit of my catastrophic imagination. That's as far as I could take that kid. And I wasn't able to go any farther with that. I think that's a good line that you drew because, yeah, there is that level of authenticity of just how could you know? And those who knew, they were the biggest forgetters, most of them. There's so many reluctant testimonials. I was wondering in the world to come, the story that was adapted into the film, I feel for actors as well who feel limited now, inhabiting roles about lesbianism or different sexuality or transgender. It's really the same issue. What will happen is I'm sure there are readers who go, he's clearly not a lesbian. I'm not going to read this. And then there were others who are like, how did you know so much about what goes on? And again, if I'm reading something like that, I'm reading any number of sets of letters of women who are involved in the 19th century and how physically involved they are is in some ways irrelevant. Clearly, there are all these love relationships from the 19th century that I can channel in terms of research and feel as though I'm starting to understand them on some level anyway. And again, a lot depends on how far down that road you want to go, because at some level too, what I think people are worried about justifiably is exploitation. So if I'm writing a story like that, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm willing to imagine what a woman in love would say to another woman in love. I'm willing to imagine what a first kiss would be like. I'm not going to describe sex between two women very graphically. That I'm not going to do. Not because I'm certain I can't do it, but because that starts to feel exploitative to me. There starts to be a point when the reader is going, so why are you writing this? Literature is all about extending the empathetic imagination, Shepard says. As a reader, when you identify with a character, you can experience indirectly what it is like to be that fictional person. For this reason, it is very important that we as a society continue to read and expose ourselves to a wide variety of works. It is an important part of learning to imagine lives unlike our own, to come face to face with the fact that the way we experience the world is not the only way it can be experienced. I can understand why the idea of literature may not appeal to lots of people. We associate it with school, with essays, not with pleasure. As Shepard will argue later in the interview, there is a much deeper and more meaningful kind of pleasure derived from the act of immersing oneself in a fictional world. The fact that it is difficult, that it takes concentration, is part of the value and the satisfaction. As any athlete can understand, challenging oneself and doing the hard things can open up the possibility of feeling the kind of deep satisfaction that comes with self-improvement. Reading literature is not just about self-improvement, though. One argument to define what constitutes a literary work states that it must have an aesthetic function. The aesthetic, for Immanuel Kant, is the attempt to bridge the gap between the material and spiritual world between a world of concrete forms and a world of concepts. This can be said of all art. To find a sort of meaning in this imperfect world, or to create meaning, it is important and necessary to engage with literature as art, as something which brings together our daily realities and the greater concepts, ideas, and emotional truths which elevate their meaning. Jim Shepard is a catastrophist. He is drawn to catastrophe in his stories, and as you will hear later in the interview, he believes the world is headed toward catastrophe and the best we can do is seek to slow down the crash, approaching that edge with as much humanity as we can. 
If this is the case, and I agree that eventually it may be, it becomes even more important to embrace literature and art. We can slow down the crash by opening our minds to realities other than our own, thereby recognizing the ways we may ourselves be contributing to a catastrophic future. As Shepard mentions, the themes to which he always returns in his writing include complicity and responsibility. To what extent can we watch the world burn believing we are powerless? This question of responsibility hits close to home for me, certainly. What, after all, can one person do to make the world a saner, slower, more responsible place? I don't know, but I believe that if we all extended our empathetic imagination to include the experiences of those unlike ourselves, it would be a step in the right direction. Now, back to the interview. Sounds like the research helps you with your ability to inhabit people who might not come from your same background or be your same gender or ethnicity. And paradoxically, it helps me to respect boundaries, even mm -hmm. as I penetrate them. So this is a tough question for a lot of authors, but if you had to list five books that you think everybody should read, what are some of the books you would put on that list? Everybody should read, but given that people react to things very differently, I'm not sure I would say if everybody read this book, everybody would be better off. There are some books that I hold up as miracles of various types. If, for example, someone were to say to me, wow, research certainly seems hard. I would say something like, we'll read Marguerite Yourcenar's Memoirs of Hadrian's, in which she inhabits the Emperor Hadrian's sensibility. And you just think, how on earth did she do something like this? I'm trying in a short story to inhabit a fairly befuddled auxiliary who doesn't understand very much how the Roman Empire works, but can indicate a number of things to us by what he does understand. She's got a person who understands entirely not only how the empire works, but how spectacularly capable figure transformed it. And she's maintaining an illusion of an emotional life. And so I'm like, how did this person do this? So when somebody says, how does research work? I'll say something like, if you really want to know how research works, read this book. If somebody says, well, gee, it seems to me there's a million third rails in 2023, things you can't write about. What do I do now? I'll say, read Lolita. That is an untouchable subject. If you believe, as a number of misguided readers do, that you're supposed to root for your protagonist, then that book is impossible. But if you believe that what you're supposed to do is extend your empathetic imagination as far as you can, and you think, what about somebody who will rationalize that, who will rationalize pedophilic predation, and then teach himself what a monster he's been? That's an astonishing uh, thing to pull off. Would I tell everybody on earth to read Lolita? No, I don't think so. I can think of any number of people who probably would have a bad reaction to Lolita and probably would never read anything again if I told them to do that. Books as medicine, indeed. I do believe in art for art's sake, but there is this instructive quality that books allow us to live out other lives, imagine other futures, positive or negative. And so I'm wondering, as you've described yourself as a catastrophist, you've, of course, written about Chernobyl, what do you feel is the importance of the environmental humanities and to expand our empathy for the planet and for mm. all lives on Earth? That sense that we have that we are this unit that moves through a background, and that's the environment, is a really destructive sense. And anything that makes us understand that when we say environment, we mean us. So to me, say environmentalist, you're like, yeah, me, essentially. I am part of this matrix, as opposed to like a theater backdrop. That's what the world is, my theater backdrop. Anything that, that demonstrates to us that we're not separate, that if we screw up part of the planet, we're diminishing ourselves in very real and concrete ways is very useful. And feels as though most readers take that in non-fictional terms, but 
people do it in fictional terms as well all the time, literary terms. I definitely think it can be helpful. You obviously have this fluid in terms of your boundaries of your sense of self, but other people have this very constructive, rigid, this idea of my shell and can't think, oh, what it would be like to be an animal or to be a river and maybe poetry and different kinds of humanities novel writing can help awaken that. Anything that reminds you that your way of seeing the world is idiosyncratic and not the way of seeing the world is wonderful in terms of breaking up that tyranny. So whether it's, I wonder what plants feel, or whether it's like, I wonder what people feel over in Kansas, one way or the other, it's enlarging your sense of scope. You're a prolific short story writer, which is becoming rare because we talked a little bit about the market and I was always told short stories don't sell. I don't understand it personally. If you're talking about the attention economy, attention's going down, short stories seem ideal for that. So Publishers have been despairing about that for years. They're like, well, if everybody is busy and nobody has any time, why aren't short stories selling more? It doesn't seem as baffling to me that short stories sell less because I think most people are introduced to short stories in academia or in school. And so they associate them with tests. If I say, here's a good short story for you to read, some part of you may go, oh, am I going to understand this? Is this going to be over before I even figure out what's going on? So on the one hand, I think short stories on the literary spectrum are a little closer to poetry, which means a little more difficult for the average reader. At least that's the expectation. I've often heard from readers who have written and said, boy, I really like that story. I wish it had gone on longer. And they don't mean it simply as a compliment. They also mean, no, really, once I invest myself in that world, I want more of a payback. Once I figure out how Hogwarts works, then I want more of a payback for that. And so there's a reason I think that big beach bestsellers are big fat books rather than little books. So I'm not that surprised that short stories don't sell. It seems strange because people always say that novels are a place of complexity where you have that space to go in depth. But I think it might be something to do with the marketing. I never see short story collections being marketed. And it could be like, oh, it's too complex because there's all these stories, whereas you could like one big idea for the novel. Yeah, I think that's right. I think publishers have in some ways assumed that they can't sell stories. And for that reason, they don't sell stories. But whether that's a chicken or the egg, that's the way it works. When you're doing literary fiction, you're not going to be making a lot of money one way or the other most of the time. I think what the publishers are hoping is they have a model wherein every so often a novel makes a whole lot of money. And so they're always hoping that whatever novel you're turning in, that's going to be one of those. They don't even have a model where short stories make a whole lot of money. So they know that short stories they're publishing, A, because they love them, B, because they want to support the writer, and C, because short stories are a valuable literary thing to have in the world. But whenever you turn short stories into an editor, their heart sinks a little bit because they think, oh, now I have to sell this. In today's world, what do you think is the value of the written form over, say, film, TikTok, Instagram, just all of the (laughs) other things? How is it going to survive? What does it give to the world that is essential. If you think about the difference between what happens on TikTok or even what happens on texting and what happens on the page of something you really love, all of that revision that goes on that allows the page to be as beautiful as it seems to you is the person taking themselves from their raw version of themselves to their best version of themselves. That revision process allows us to continually hone what we're trying to say and to continually move from, that isn't exactly what I'm trying to express to, well, that's closer, that's closer, that's closer. And that amount of effort is worthy of the time it takes to do it because it creates a better version of ourselves to be put out there. And it's also worthy of the time it takes you to encounter it. 
you will spend more time on a page of your favorite prose than you will on TikTok. And that is good for you as well. When you slow down, when you stop and think about just how intricate that sentence is, that's doing something very useful for your brain. That's something TikTok can't and won't do. Part of the reason you're drawn to TikTok is that you know that's not going to happen. So you feel like, now I can relax a little bit. I don't have to concentrate. Concentration is a little bit of work. Um, and sometimes we're up for it. And other times we're like, yeah, I don't need that right now. And we all know that feeling. Somebody says to you, hey, let's go see Oppenheimer. And you go, you know what? I'm not in the mood for that right now. Can we just go see John Wick 4? I just want to relax. That's fine. But there are other moments when you think, no, I want to put in the energy that it takes to negotiate a page of Virginia Woolf's prose. And I'm going to be rewarded for that. My mind is going to be rewarded for that. I'm going to think a little more intricately and a little more intelligently about the world in general because of that. It's so true. You have to pay that bit more attention, but it's almost like love. It's like a marriage or a relationship is... It's a wonderful analogy. Eudora Welty said something like focus, clarity, insight, time, all of the things you need to be a close reader. Those are the attributes of love. And it's exactly like saying your lover comes into the room and you go, look, I don't have time for this right now. Can I just stare at somebody and not worry about what's going on? And you're like, okay, what does that tell you about your values? Yeah, that's a really important thing because we've been talking about that a little bit. We're talking about governance and technologies. Who's putting the values in it, whether this kind of missing the role of the artist or the philosopher mm -hmm. or even spiritual people involved in that. And I hope that we do see more of that. In closing, what teachers, whether actual teachers or other writers or people you've known, have been important to you in helping form the writer you are? And as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? In terms of Part A, I had two teachers that I'll always be grateful for. One was a medievalist, a young woman when I was at Trinity College who taught freshman English. After the first day of freshman English, I went up to her and I said, I think I have to drop the course and what's going on. And she said, why do you say that? And I said, everybody seems to know what they're talking about. Everybody seems totally confident. Everybody's talking about how to break down these literary works. And I had come from a really crappy public high school. A lot of the kids I was in with had come from these very Tony private schools, and they knew the language of literary analysis, and I didn't. And I just thought, I'm out of my depth. And she said, what did you think was going on? And I tried to haltingly say what I thought was going on. And she said, that's more or less what we were talking about. We just have a different vocabulary for it. And she said, just stick around, just give it another couple of weeks. And if she hadn't done that, I would have thought, I can't do literature. I need to do something else. Also, in graduate school, had a wonderful professor, John Hawks, really encouraged me to remember that always look for the weird in my own work and in everybody else's work, and reminded me that we always think we're more normal than we are. And that was a huge help to remember that the weirdness inside us is not what we have to run from. It's what allows us to have any chance of originality. So those two teachers I'll always be super grateful for. And in terms of what I hope young people will be doing, they have so much staring them in the face in terms of what they have to deal with and in terms of everything that's competing for their attention and anything that can allow them to slow down and hang on to some of the values we've been talking about for the last hour would be something wonderful and heroic and would be helping them fight a holding action against what's coming. There's a favorite line of mine from an old early film noir where somebody says, so Johnny, is there a way to win? And the film noir hero goes, no, but there's a way to lose more slowly. And I think that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to lose as slowly as possible. And I think that young people hanging on to what we've been talking about 
today would help slow down the process dramatically. Indeed, it's about losing slowly and losing artfully. We all pass from this earth, these exactly. earth sounds eventually, but how to do it in a beautiful way that embraces the experiences of others and shows that love and attention. Yeah. Thank you, Jim Shepard, for sharing your wonderful weirdness, inviting us into your imaginative world, sharing your fearless approach to inhabiting a diversity of voices with empathy and understanding. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for being so intricate and interesting in your conversation, both of you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Claire Tolliver with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Claire Tolliver. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.